The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. All right, with that, let's go on to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I went on this trip for nine days by an organization called Answers in Genesis. It was by invitation only. I had already started the book of Genesis, teaching it when I was invited to go to this trip. So... Boy, that was lucky. That was coincidental. No, that was the providence of God. It was amazing. And like, there's too much to tell you now, but just two highlights I wanted to share with you. One of the highlights this week is one of the leaders was Dr. Bill Barrick, 73 years old, retired Hebrew professor from the Master Seminary, and is just finishing what will be the first ever, I think, scholarly exegetical commentary based on the Hebrew text from a dispensational point of view in the English language on the book of Genesis. I know that was a mouthful, but it's coming out soon. He's been telling me it's coming out for the last five years, but he's, anyway, it's taking a long time. And uh, so I would just, personally, I would just consider Dr. Bill Barrick the greatest Hebrew scholar on the book of Genesis alive today. He's just a gift to the church. He's absolutely amazing. And I just kind of shouted him and followed him everywhere for nine days. It was probably kind of obnoxious. Hey, I've got a sermon coming up when I get back. You've got to help me out here on day three. Dr. Barrett, and he did, so that was fun. And then another thing that stuck out with me as we're going down the river for 187 miles, looking at this awesome Grand Canyon that's been carved out in the Colorado River, is on day one, they emphatically got it into our brain that when you're here as a Christian, you don't look at the Grand Canyon from atop, which we did, or also down below, which we did, and say as a Christian, oh, isn't God's creation beautiful? Some of us were like, huh? Then they proceeded to explain. Actually, what you should say is, oh, isn't God's wrath awesome? Because that's how the Grand Canyon got there. The Grand Canyon is not in the condition that God created it in Genesis chapter 1. The Grand Canyon is in the condition as a result of the flood, which was an act of God's universal wrath and judgment on sinners. That was a great reminder. But with that comes God's mercy and grace. Um, So that's the biblical perspective. So in light of that, let's go on to Genesis chapter 1. And we are already, we are just whizzing through Genesis chapter 1. We're already on day 3. Can you believe it? Day 3. Let's go ahead and look at it. If you have a bulletin there, I gave you kind of an outline to follow along as we go through this narrative passage. Let me read what happened on day 3, verses 9 through 13. As Moses wrote this, 1400 B.C. uh, Creation actually happened... A few thousand years before Moses, how did Moses know? Because God told Moses what to write down. God told him, this is how it happened. I was the only one there, me and the Trinity. And Moses, this is what happened. And then Moses wrote it down. In verse 9, here's what Moses wrote. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day, day three. 
so we've already looked at day one, what God did. There was nothing except God, the triune God. As he self-existed in all eternity, there was nothing in existence yet. No angels, no humanity, no earth, no planets, no sun, no stars. And then on day one, God created the heavens and the earth. And specifically, he separated the light from the darkness and he created light. That's what we saw on day one. As God created the mass by which he would form the rest of creation, in verse 2, it, uh, God describes that mass as formless and void, tohu and bohu, those two Hebrew words that are very specific, formless and void. In other words, they were without form. They weren't habitable yet. Nobody could live there. And they were void. They were empty. Nobody lived there yet or nothing lived there yet. And over the next six days of creation, God is going to form them and fill them, fashion them and fill them. And that's exactly what he does, step by step, in a very logical order, leading to the climax or the crescendo of God's creation, the pinnacle of God's creation, which is humanity. And we talked about that, how as we move through the creation here, the description of creation definitely is God-centered or theocentered. It's on him he's the all-important one everything he does is absolutely amazing it's it just reveals clearly his omnipotence his sovereignty he's the great creator everything about him all of his attributes just come clearly illustrated in the acts of creation so it's theocentric but on top of that there's a secondary purpose and it is man-centered or anthropocentric or geocentric earth-centered and what i mean by that that god created the earth for humanity in other words it's nothing else is at the center of his creation. Uh, it's not heliocentric. The sun is not the center of God's creation as described in Genesis chapter 1. The pinnacle of God's creation is humanity, is man. And he's creating the earth, fashioning the earth, filling the earth for the benefit of man, humankind, because men will represent God on the earth. They will be his stewards over the rest of creation. That's what I mean by man-centered or anthropocentric. So, just because you hear the word man-centered, don't get all nervous. Oh, that's a bad word. Well, it depends on how you use it in the context. In other words, uh, God doesn't describe alien beings out on Venus or something like that in this passage. Because that's not who he's dealing with. That's not the drama of redemption being fulfilled in somewhere else in the universe. It's through man, humanity, who would represent and be God's representatives and stewards on earth since the time of creation all throughout history and even today and, believe it or not, even into the future during the millennium and beyond so we talked a little bit about that and then so god is creating all things to make them habitable so that humanity on day six can live in a really a perfect world as it was given in the beginning for god's glory and really for our good so day one god creates light and darkness with that god created time so he kicked in a really a 24-hour clock on day one even though the sun hasn't been created yet and clearly, it said there was evening, there was morning, day one. Then on day two, God, basically what God created, this firmament, this rakia in the Hebrew, this uh, vault, as the NIV says, or the firmament, as the King James says from the Latin, or the NASB, uh, calls it the expanse. And there's been a lot of debate about that. But we don't really know all the details. What we do know for sure is that God separated the waters from the waters. So God took some water from planet Earth, and he put it there up there in the sky somewhere. And they're, they're either the clouds that exist today or they're some kind of a, an expanse that was broken at the time of the flood, which is another theory, or it was another uh, circle or vault of water that was put on the outer border of our universe 
that really is the borders and the perimeters and the edges of all of creation. And it still exists today out there as water. But we don't know. We do know God separated water from water for the purpose of... And the end result, why did God do this? Because the byproduct or the end result was what God called sky. And it was a livable, breathable atmosphere that didn't exist before he did this. So he made a livable, breathable atmosphere on day two, so that when he creates humans, they can actually live on this planet Earth and breathe, and all living creatures as well. So that's that's what he did. That's why it was good. That's why he is creating it, fashioning it, so that men and women can live on planet Earth. So now we get to day three. So let's go ahead and look at it. What did God do on day three? Well, day three, basically God created land and he created animals. Again, he's fashioning the earth so that humans can live on it. And after day two, planet earth was a landmass, but it was totally submerged underwater. So if you could see what it looked like after day two, all you would see was water around the globe. And there was no expression, no exertion of land above water. There were no mountains. There was no continent. There was no earth that you could see. There was no dry land anywhere. It was just water that circled the globe. That's what it looked like. And on day three, that changes and it's God's intent. So let's go ahead and look at it what God did and how he brought it about uh, the earth. He has to create the earth and make it livable because that would be best suited for humanity. And in the future, there's going to be an earth for humans to live on when the curse is removed, even during the millennium, Christ reigns on the earth. And then even in the new heavens and the new earth, there's a, a new earth where humans will live on and interact and have fellowship, even with Jesus who will be in a body. So I broke it up into uh, six points here. You can't really outline this because this is a narrative. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a story, but it's true. It's a true story. It's history. And that's just not really a minor point. It is significant that we got to be reminded that verses 9 through 13 is not poetry. I've already said this earlier, but maybe you weren't here. Genesis chapter 1 is not poetry. Genesis 1 through 50 is not poetry. Never has been understood so by the Jews ever throughout history. That's a recent thing. People say it started with liberal theologians, just so you know, liberal European theologians within the last two century for the first time said Genesis chapter one through three is poetry or Genesis one through 11 is poetry. And the reason they did that, because they wanted to say they want to have reason to say you don't have to take it literally That's where that came from. But if you if you know Hebrew, you study the Hebrew of Genesis chapter one, it is clear it is not poetry. And just I could give many reasons. I'll just give one reason why in verses nine through 13. Why it is not poetry. Genesis chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 is narrative and not poetry because of the wow consecutive. Wow. W-O-W. What is that? That's one letter in the Hebrew and it's a conjunction. And it can be translated as and. King James or then. NASB. Or so. Or now. NIV. It's a conjunction. And that little letter, the wow, is attached on the front of a verb at the beginning of most of these verses, verses 3 through 31. It's called a wow consecutive. So if you read the King James Bible, the King James Bible did the best of all the translators of our English translations of preserving the significance of the wow consecutive, showing that this is a narrative passage. Because if you look at a King James Bible, every verse, starting in verse 3 
down to 31 begins with the word and. And, 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 and. And that's the way it should be because that's the way it is in the Hebrew Bible. If you look at the New, New American Standard, it says and sometimes, it says now sometimes, it says then sometimes, it says so sometimes. And about half the time almost, there's no conjunction at all. That's bad because there's a Hebrew conjunction there. It's called the wow consecutive. That's just just a normal attribute of narrative Hebrew language, of story, of history. So that's one reason that is just clear, syntactical, grammatical, foolproof reason why Genesis 1 is not poetry. If you want to read poetry about creation and of how God did things in the beginning, then go to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 describes how God created things in the beginning. And it doesn't use the while consecutive. It's not there for over 30 verses. Or you can go to Job 38 to chapter 40. God describing how he created all things. And the while consecutive is not there. Why? Because that is wisdom slash poetic literature. Anyway, had to say that because it's such a common argument being used to intimidate Christians into thinking that, oh, I can't take Genesis 1 literally because it's poetry. And that's a fallacy anyway to say that poetry can't be taken literally. You can have a poem and it can still be literal. It can still be historical. I write historical poems all the time. I think the first time I ever read, read, uh, wrote a poem that was literal, historical, and I truly meant it with great passion was when I wrote a poem to my wannabe girlfriend back then, who is now my wife, back about 30-some years. True story. I wrote a poem. It was about four lines long, and apparently it worked. She married me, and it rhymed, and I used figurative language and metaphors. But I meant it, and it was literal, and it was historical. Don't ask her to read it. It's embarrassing. But anyway, <clears throat> let's go on to our main points here. What did God do, and how did he do it on day three when he created land and plants? Let's go with the demarcation. That's point number one, the demarcation. God forms the land. Demarcation, well, that's a big word, a lot of syllables. True. Demarcation is when you demarcate things. When you make boundaries, you draw lines of boundaries clearly to separate things. Separate. Well, that's a key word. God uses that word separation. He used it in verse 4 when he separated light from darkness. He uses it on day 3 for verses 9 to 13 when he separates water from dry land. He separates dry land from water. Separation. That's what demarcation is. Drawing lines of separation. Setting up boundaries. Setting up boundaries. Those are the, the words that God uses in Job when he's talking to Job rebuking him, saying, where were you when I created the world and set the boundaries for the mountains and the boundaries for the sea? You weren't there. Those are the words God uses. Demarcation, boundaries. God forms the land. So day two, remember, there is land, but it's submerged totally 100% underwater, and there's water on top. And now God is going to create some boundaries. He's going to move some stuff around. Then God said, how does he do it? Well, he does it with the power of his word. God says and it happens. God declares and it happens. God says something and expresses his desire and will. And instantaneously, it is done. The implication is you read through this, God said it and it happens immediately. Not over the course of time. It was not a process of thousands or millions or billions of years. He said it and it happened. But what about the timing? Well, the end of each section or paragraph or pericope he, t- he says when it happened, a day, happened in a day. And he did it by the power of his word. Then God said. Hebrews 11, verse 3. 
comments on this thousands of years later. What should we think of the accuracy, the historicity, the literal nature of Genesis chapter 1 on creation? Well, the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11 verse 3, that God created and fashioned the worlds with the power of his word. Where did the Hebrews author get that? From Genesis chapter 1, taking it literally. Well, wow, that's not very scientific. That's why the Hebrews author says, yeah, you believe it by faith. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. It's not subject to the natural. It's amazing. God said it happened. We talked about how Jesus did this. He did miracles by the power of his word. So all throughout this passage, God is creating things and making things happen, forming, fashioning, filling by the power of his word. Verse 3, God said. Verse 6, God said. Verse 9, God said. Verse 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 29, God said. God says and it happens. His will cannot be thwarted. He is totally sovereign, totally in control, totally omnipotent. It's one of the main things we should take away from this passage as we read it not getting lost in the details and the debates of, well, hmm, what is that expanse? When was it made? Where is it? What does it look like? Well, what's dominant here is the almighty, awesome God who is acting, and things are happening, and he does it with the power of his word. So God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear, or literally let dry land become visible. That's the Hebrew phrase. Let dry land become visible, meaning it wasn't visible, and this is what God did on day three, he made dry land become visible. And so the dry, the land that was under the water, in order for it, for, for it to become visible, it has to be raised up, right? Whoop. Then God would have to, of necessity, probably create a valley to push down. And according to the book of Job and the Psalms and Jeremiah, that's exactly what God did to allow the land to emerge. And during this time, on day three, God created land, Continents, maybe just one continent for all we know, and mountains and hills. We know that before the flood, mountains existed. And that's what God did. With a command, he said, let dry land appear. And all of a sudden, God is moving things around like a big pile of clay, and everything goes exactly where he wants it to go. So we don't know what the topography looked like before the flood, but we do know for a fact that God created land, continent, and space for humanity to reside and live, along with all the other living things, including plants, and animals. Absolutely amazing. So God created a land. One thing that jumped, one new thing I learned this week going through the Grand Canyon with these geologists is we got to see all these layers uh, of the earth, layer after layer after layer, and they're distinct and they're of different kinds of rocks and formations and stones. And you got about 10 or 11 layers of alternating versions of kinds of sandstone and limestone and sandstone and limestone and sandstone and limestone and the deeper you go the uh the further back in history you're going until you get to a, a very definitive demarcation in all the strata of the rocks and then you hit this granite this out of nowhere granite and schist it's called and the amazing thing about the granite and schist is under all these layers that all the layers above the granite and schist has a lot of uh Dead, uh, dead living things that are preserved through set, uh, through, uh, just natural processes or a flood or catastrophe or whatever else. Fossil after fossil, just zillions of fossils basically above the granite. When you get into the granite stone, there are zero fossils. No living creatures. Nothing preserved. No catastrophe. And this actually 
has boggled the minds of even secular geologists for years and years and years since they've been examining it. They can't explain how at the granite level, which is the rock foundation level, the very hard rock level, that in that granite there are no examples of fossils, of living creatures, vertebrae, or anything like that. But all of a sudden, just on the layer above it, boom, you've got all kinds of living fossils, even fossils of vertebrae and other kinds of marine creatures. As a matter of fact, 40 different phyla are represented in the layer just above. It's called the Precambrian Explosion. Life just came out of nowhere in the fossil record, and they have all kinds of crazy, kooky theories to explain it. And the only way you can explain it is some kind of catastrophe happened. And by the way, this is true worldwide in the rock strata. Worldwide. It's universal. The only way to explain it is some kind of catastrophe took place. And they actually come up with theories of catastrophe. They said, well, there's a series of five or six floods, local floods around the world. No, there was one big flood and it was universal. So that, that was just amazing. So literally our geologists were saying, this is day three rock. And I'm just like, really? That is awesome. So what did God make on day three when he's doing all this? Probably some granite and schist for all we know. Unless it's changed over time, got to see it with my own eyes. Absolutely amazing. Remember that the next time you go in your kitchen with your granite countertops. Verse 9. Did Really, Pastor Cliff, did this really happen like this? Isn't this mythology and just story and somebody invented this and this is legend. It's been stored over time and this information was stolen from the Babylonians and the Egyptians years. No, because at the end of verse 9 it says, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. We're going to talk more about that. Okay, let's go on to number two. After the demarcation of God creating land, separating land from the oceans, he does something else. Number two, there's the designation. God names the land. So he creates the land. It's dry land appears. Oh, by the way, it was interesting. One of our geologists noted that there is actual geographical evidence for the fact, and actually secular geologists would even agree with this, that at one time they think there was just one continent. Not many. And... The Christian geologist says that could very likely be so, where God separated the water from the land, and there was one contiguous piece of land that God created on day three. It's very possible. The Hebrew language allows for it. Present geological studies allow for that theory to be true. This would make sense when God told Noah later in Genesis to call all the animals of the world in two by two to get into the ark. And if they had to travel a far distance from a different part of the world, it'd be much easier to go on one contiguous piece of land or a continent as opposed to trying to uh, have these animals get on, make a boat and build a boat and go across the oceans to get over to Noah. But, oh, that's very interesting. So it's very possible. But going on to number two, the designation. So God creates, God fashions, God forms, and then God does something else. Repeatedly in verse 10, then God called the dry land earth. So he gave it a name. That's what he did when he created the sky. When he separated the water from the water and he, he called the expanse sky. That is sky. God named sky. God separated the light from the darkness and he named light. He called it day and night. He gave it a name. And we know that from the Bible, clearly when God names things, that speaks of his sovereignty over something. He owns it. He is the creator. He is the one who has given it purpose. He is the head over it. He is not part of it. It is not subject to him. Because all these, there were many pagan religions that existed in the day when Moses got this information from God, by the way. The Egyptians had false gods in the days of Moses, 1400 BC. Ra is one of them, but they had many other gods. And the Egyptians had 
just a, a panoply of different gods or a hierarchy of gods. And they had all these gods designated over different things in nature. There was a, a god of the Nile and a god of life and a god of fertility and a god of death and a god of the sun and a god of the moons. And they were at uh, odds with one another and they would compete with one another and they're fighting against one another. And they have their own little cul-de-sac of authority and nobody was totally sovereign in charge. And God is giving Moses this information to just shatter all those false ideologies, worldviews, and false religions in Moses' day. Saying, no, there wasn't a bunch of disparate, multitudinous gods competing with one another. There's one God. His name is Yahweh Elohim. He's the creator of all things, completely sovereign, totally controlled, totally separate, transcendent over his creation, and everything serves his purposes. And he is sovereign over it, and he names it accordingly. It all serves him. Creation didn't emanate from God or come from God or an appendage of God, as they believed. He was totally separate over his creation. That's another one of the themes that weaves itself out all throughout Genesis chapter 1. This is amazing. Moses is writing this down, and then he gives this to the Jews, the Israelites, who hadn't had written revelation up to that point in history. They had oral tradition and a vision here and there. But this information had to be amazing, alarming, shocking, surprising, encouraging, eye-opening. Wow, really? This is how it all happened? It's awesome. God is amazing. And God had absolute total authority over his creation. Because he, he called the dry land earth. He gave it a name. And the gathering of the waters, God called the sea. He gave it a name. It's interesting that after God creates the plants, this is the last time in the narrative where God names something. You know what he does with the naming of things? He he delegates that to Adam. Adam becomes the one who names things. God, verse 5, God called the light day. So God has authority over the light. The sun is not God. God creates the sun. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth. God called the waters sea. God is giving them their names. Then in chapter 2, we find out in verse 19, God creates Adam. And then it says he created the animals and ran all the animals by Adam. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. So Adam was given the authority to name the animals. That is sovereignty delegated to man. So man had authority over the animals. He named them accordingly. Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, whatever it was. He is a vice regent on behalf of God. He has delegated authority. What's even more interesting, hold on to your, hold on to your skirts, ladies. Verse 23, God creates the first woman. Adam looks at this woman. She is absolutely beautiful. And it says that Adam called her woman. Who named woman? Adam did. So he named the animals and he named woman. You shouldn't take that in a negative way. That's a very positive thing because it fulfills the purpose of why was woman created in the first place. First Corinthians 11 is explicit that God didn't create man for the woman. God created the man, the woman for the man. God created the woman for the man. That's a good thing. That's complimentary. God created, it was not good for man to be alone. He can't handle living alone. He's, it's not his purpose to live alone. That is not God's ideal. Man alone, male alone doesn't fully represent the image of God and all of his characteristics and attributes. Man was created to have a perfect complement. That is woman. 
So man and woman together are the perfect complement, the full representation of the image of God. But when God created just Adam, it wasn't good. So God had to make a perfect complement to Adam, and he did. And her name, according to Adam, was woman because she was taken out of man. But it does probably retain that element of headship on the part of Adam at that time. And that is preserved all throughout Scripture, that when there is a marriage, the man is the head of the marriage relationship. The man is the designated head. He is responsible before God to be the protector, the provider, the nurturer of his wife, to love his wife, to serve his wife, as Christ loved the church. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Just as the father is the head of Christ. They are equal as God, and yet there's a functional complement in terms of roles. That's all that means. Absolutely amazing. So the designation, God names the land and God names the sea. By the way, footnote, it's kind of interesting that in heaven, in the new heaven and the earth, that there won't be any more sea. Why is that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just said, oh, by the way, there's no more sea. Well, why is that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. So quit asking. There's no more sea. But you can think, well, what does sea do? Well, people drown in the sea. That's bad. Uh, the sea separates people. That's bad. The sea's tumultuous and inconvenient and gets in the way. That's bad. These are This is cliffology. I'm making this stuff up. Um, the sea. Oh, if you don't have a sea in heaven, there's more room for everybody. Come on, Pastor Cliff. Yeah, I'm making this stuff up. But anyway, those are all theories. Okay, go back. So there's the demarcation. God forms the land, the designation. God names it, has authority over his creation. Number three, the delineation. The delineation, listing and itemizing specific things that he creates. What is that? That's on verse 11 and 12. When God creates, so he, he creates the land. It is perfect. The soil is primo. I don't know if any of you grow plants. I do have a green thumb. And you know, key to success is getting the, the soil ready. Man, and sometimes that takes a lot of work. You got to get rid of the rocks and you got to add the nutrients, and whatever. Man, this was just pristine perfect, beautiful soil in the condition in which it was given because that's what God said. But 11 and 12, he creates the plants. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's let the earth vegetate vegetation. Kind of interesting. That is plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. So God basically, these are just two broad categories of plants. Vegetating vegetation, or actually seed-bearing seeds and fruit with seeds in it. Those are the two Hebrew phrases. Seed-bearing seeds like grass and herbs and all that stuff. That's one category. And then fruit trees. In other words, fruit that has the seed in it, which was distinct than other uh, wheat, for example, or other things that uh, don't have fruit in the seed inside of the fruit, like grass. So just two broad general categories. And it was so, verse 12, and the earth brought forth, in obedience to God's word, brought forth vegetation, two categories, plants yielding seed after their kind, and also trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. Notice the phrase, after their kind, after their kind. That means type, according to their type, according to their type. This phrase is repeated with respect to the animals and creatures as well. After their kind, after their kind. This is God's designation of setting limits on species and plants, they will stay and reproduce in accordance with their kind. 
So when he created an apple tree, it wasn't with time going to evolve into a Home Depot building. It will stay preserved after its kind. It's not going to turn into a cucumber after its kind, after its kind. God is very specific. So these are types. Uh, we call these taxonomies, Bloom's taxonomy and whatever else. And we have taxonomy, taxonomy, taxonomies today, but they're totally different than what's in the Bible. But God has his own taxonomies. Plants will stay plants. Plants will not evolve into animals. Plants will not evolve into human beings. And when God created animals, he created them after their kind, according to their type. And they will stay within their type. They will not deviate beyond their type. They will not evolve beyond their type. Animals do not become humans. God made that clear. After their kind, after their kind, after their kind. He says that about plants. He says that about animals. He says that about insects and creatures that he creates in Genesis chapter 1. When he gets to humans, he doesn't say after their kind. There's only one human race, Adam and Eve, and everyone comes from their loins. Everyone. It's amazing. So that is the delineation. Two different kinds of plants. And all the plants were perfect at this time. All the plants were good. The end of verse 12 says God's pronouncement was it is good. The earth was good. The sea was good. The earth was good. There's no earthquakes happening at this time. It's perfect. It's exactly the way he wants it. There's no famine at this time. The sea was good. There are no tumultuous tsunamis killing people at this time. There are no tornadoes at this time. It's good. He said it's good. It's a pronouncement he gives. It's exactly the way he wants it in its perfected state up to this point before the curse. He also says that about the plants. The plants are good. They're exactly the way I want them. That isn't true today. Today we have plants that actually kill people. Hemlock and other kinds of plants, literally, if you, that are dangerous, harmful plants. There are good plants, bad plants. Genesis chapter 318, uh, part of the curse is God did something to plants and messed them all up. And now all of a sudden, uh, the plants aren't all good. There's going to be plants that are going to attack Adam and compete with Adam and make his life arduous and difficult. Thorns and thistles from now on, they will grow. So maybe that's where weeds came from or began at that time. Plants can be bad. Poison oak is bad. I discovered that when I came to California when I was in my 20s. Didn't know what it was in Colorado and slept under a poison oak bush. Yeah, like an idiot. <laughs> Didn't know what it was. Man, that was terrible. Anyway, some plants are naughty. But in the beginning, it was not so. It was good. Third time, God says it was good. Let's go on to point number four. The designation. God declares it good, what he's, he, he's created. So for the third time at the end of verse 12, God says it is good. The light was good, creating time was good, creating day was good. It was perfect. That's exactly uh, human beings will be able to live their life with order and consistency and be able to plan ahead with the pre preservation of time. That is good and light. And the earth was good and the seas were good. And this is all good, mostly exactly how God wanted it. And also in relation to how humanity will live by it and be blessed when God creates humanity. God declares it good at the end of verse 10 and the end of verse 12. I would propose that when God uses these designations, it is good, it is good, it is good. He's specifically talking about what he created on that specific day until he gets to the very end. In chapter 1, verse 31, at the end of day 6, when he said, it is very good. That's a summary statement of everything that he created. It's all inclusive. Everything he created is good. Not only that, yea, verily good. It is perfect. It's exactly how he wanted it. All the plants, all the animals, all of creation, uh, humanity. There's no sin. There's no curse. There's no bad weather. There's no death. Death entered with the disobedience of Adam, according to Romans chapter 5. 
That is the designation. God declares it all good. Now, this was an absolute revelation to Moses and the two million Jews that he is leading through the desert as he's given them this information. Imagine, do you think that the two million Jews in the days of Moses who were getting this revelation from Moses, their leader, their prophet, they squawked and whined all the time about Moses. Oh, this food is terrible. It's boring. It's hot out here. I want to go back to Egypt. And then when they were in Egypt, they were in slavery, being whipped and beaten and everything else and had no freedoms and liberties. They didn't even know what it was like to live in a good earth and in a good situation. Nothing was good. And here's Moses telling them, you know what? It hasn't always been that way. In the beginning, when God originally created everything, everything was good. That had to be a, just a shock. Wow. What happened? The natural question to them is, what happened? And then Moses probably said, wait till I get to chapter 3 in Genesis. That explains everything. So it was good, it was good, it was good until the curse. That's the designation. Number five, the declaration. God affirms what happens as he creates day by day. God said, let there be light. There was light, verse three. That's what I mean by the affirmation or the declaration. God said it, God intended it, God did it. It's true. You can believe it. Specifically in verses nine through 13, three, uh, two times, God says, and it was so. At the end of verse 9. God wanted to create land out of the water. And at the end of verse 9 it says, and it was so. Two Hebrew words. And it can literally be translated, and it really happened thusly. Or it really happened this way. And it really came to be just like that. This phrase is also used with respect to the prophets when they told the prophets. For example, First Kings 15, I think. When a prophecy was given by a living day prophet, he said... This is going to happen. That happened during his lifetime, instantaneously, on the spot, to the last detail. It was historical, and it said, and this, and it was so. The exact same terminology. It really happened this way, just as God said. So all throughout Genesis chapter 1, when people want to tell us, this isn't historical, it didn't really happen this way, it didn't really happen this way, six times God says, and it was so, and it was so, which can literally be translated, and it really happened that way. So when you read Genesis 1, you should probably read it that way. And it really happened that way. God made the expanse, and it really happened that way at the end of verse 7. God created the land, and it really happened that way at the end of verse 9. God created plants, and it really happened that way at the end of verse 11. God created the sun, moon, and stars at the end of verse 15, and it really happened that way, just as God said on day 4. God said, God created the animals, and it really happened that way at the end of verse 24. God created the first two humans, and at the end of verse 30, it really happened that way. So we believe this by faith. We weren't there. No one was there except the triune God. He was an eyewitness, and he's telling us exactly what happened. And we take him at his word. It's awesome. And it was so. That's the declaration. God affirms reality. Number six, the duration. The duration. God answers the question when. Do you know, God, I already said this earlier. God answers the question when many times all throughout Genesis chapter 1. Not just what or who. He answers the question when. And we pointed out that the first word in Genesis chapter 1 answers the question when. When? In the beginning. God matters. God cares about time. When? And he's very specific about time because on each day he creates and then he concludes with the same refrain. There was evening. There was morning. One day. There was evening. There was morning. A second day. There was evening. A morning. And here, verse 13, the third day. God created land and made it appear and made mountains and seas and the waters and the continents on day three because that's what he said. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. 
So that's the duration. How long did it take God to move the earth? One day. Exactly the way he wanted it. And we pointed out earlier that the word for day in Hebrew in Genesis 1 is yom, Y-O-M. Occurs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times in the Old Testament. And any time yom is used with a numerical adjective, it always 100% means a real day, a real human day, a literal day, a 24-hour day, if you will, will. And that's true here. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, 10 commandments. God is giving, God is giving Moses the 10 commandments. He gives the first four. He gets to the commandments about God, and he says, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Moses, honor the Sabbath day, keep it, that's the seventh day, honor the seventh day. Why? Because in six days, God made the heavens and the earth. Exodus twenty eleven. God said, in six days, the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens and the earth. The Bible says God made the heavens and the earth. In six days. I mean, you can literally say that if you're having a discussion, a debate, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, with an old earther. I wouldn't recommend debating about it with an unbeliever. But if you're talking to a fellow Christian who says they believe in the Bible and the authority of the Bible, you could literally say, quote, the Bible says that the Lord created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then just wait for their response. No, he didn't. Well, actually, he did in Exodus 20, 11, because that's what it says. That's what he says. The Lord said that. So I was on this trip for leaders, and they invite, intentionally, they invite old earthers, young earthers, and agnostics, but they're all Christians on the, the age of the earth, because they want to have a dialogue all week long. So that was kind of fun. So they give a lecture, and then everybody's dialoguing and talking and sharing their opinion. And one, our Hebrew professor brought up Exodus twenty eleven. He said, the Bible says that the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days. And nobody, there's just silence. They don't want to argue with him. Oh, yikes. Anyway, kind of interesting. So that's the duration. Well, with that, uh, let's close and go into communion now to prepare our hearts. Look at Psalm 104. I just wanted to use that for our communion time. I could have used a couple of chapters in Job to prepare our hearts for communion, so our, our men can go ahead and get the elements ready. You can actually start passing those out. Now, as the elements for communion come around, you can, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to participate in communion. Uh, just take one little cup, because inside the cup, it's got the drink there and the little piece of bread in it in just one cup. And then hold on to that, and we'll partake together. If you know Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate in communion. And as Paul told us, before we take communion, it's always good to examine our heart, confess our sin, thank the Lord Jesus for salvation, the gift of life, and the reality that he's coming again. So communion really is supposed to be a celebration for believers, so we're going to celebrate. Uh, but I wanted to give us something to meditate on, because it is clear from many passages outside of Genesis that when it comes to creation, as we study creation and what God did in the beginning... This is supposed to move on the heart of a believer. And the believer should issue forth with awe, with worship, with thanksgiving of how awesome God is. And that's what we want to do right now as we've seen what God did on day three. So let me just read a couple of verses in Psalm 104 and listen carefully. As the psalmist is reflecting back on 
how awesome God is as the creator and what he did particularly in the beginning. And this parallels Genesis chapter 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's a, a verse of worship, of passion, of emotion. Bless the Lord, almost a song. Wait, there is a song. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's appropriate. O Lord, my God. And then it turns into a prayer. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with the light as with a cloak, stretching the heaven like a tent curtain. That's how awesome he is. He's talking about creation. God lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. That could be a reference to the creation of angels. Then verse 5, God established the earth upon its foundations. There it is. God is the creator. He created the earth. So that it will not totter forever and ever. Isn't that amazing? He said it precisely in place in the very beginning on an axis, we call it, because it's spinning. You know what? It never deviates from that axis. And Scripture said a long time ago, God established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, the waters fled. This is when he created the earth. They were submerged in water. At God's rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. That's when he created land. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them you set a boundary in order that they may not pass over them so that they will not return to cover the earth and appropriately this psalm ends with verse 35 let sinners uh, be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more blessed the lord O my soul praise the lord so it's our opportunity now as we meditate in our own hearts on how awesome god is as creator as judge but also as the blessed savior having forgiven us of our sins, for those of us who know Christ, by Christ's substitutionary death on our our behalf, his promised burial, his promised resurrection, his ascension on high, and now Jesus literally is alive, reigning in heaven as King of kings on our behalf, our beloved Savior. And that's that's what we get to celebrate this morning. And I'm just going to give you a minute to meditate in your own heart as you talk to your blessed Savior before we partake of communion. And before we close in a song, let me go ahead and pray for us, if you would bow with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Reason to be reminded of life and his death and resurrection. It's a great, just tangible reminder that we're children of God. You, You know us, you love us, you've adopted us, you care for us, you preserve us you provide for us you sympathize with every weakness that we have you care you answer prayer you put your spirit in us you've given us your word you've given us wonderful christian friends and family members you've given us a a hope that the world doesn't know about the future god it's amazing we want to be reminded of all these blessed truths and give you all the glory we thank you so much and we just commit this day to you we love you we pray in christ's name amen Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org 
or call us at 650-630-0009.